following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. He's saying here, I am authorized to reverse that decision. And I am authorized on the basis of being the Messiah. Right, so this is a, another claim, just as he came in, last week we looked at him coming in, riding on the donkey as a king. It's a, it's a claim to being the Messiah. And here again, he's making another very bold, public claim that he is the Messiah, the promised one, who has authority as king and has authority over the temple. Right? Um, and, and as such, he's really uh, putting up a challenge to the leaders. He is challenging their authority. And he's challenging their decisions. And he's doing it in a very in-their-face in, in kind of way. Um, and uh, this kind of challenge would have been met uh, not with applause by the leaders, right? Can you just imagine if you're one of the high priests, you're the one that one's making, you're the one who feels like you're in authority, and this guy comes in and challenges your authority, how would you feel about that? Well, obviously, the priests did not feel good. They were not happy about and in fact, uh, next week we'll see that they come and they ask Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? How dare you usurp or take the place of our authority? And it's a challenge to their leadership. And we know this. We know that uh, as Jesus went around teaching, uh, many times his teaching was somewhat controversial, and he had many debates with the Pharisees and sometimes with the scribes about the things that he taught, Right? But nobody was going to teach. Uh, nobody was going to kill Jesus for his teaching. Right? His teaching wasn't wasn't the kind of thing that was going to get him killed. But confronting the leaders this way and challenging their authority that will get you killed. And in fact, we know in just a few short days after this, uh, they do just that. They arrest Jesus and they they nail him on the cross. Right. So again, it's another picture of Jesus. Uh, uh, intentionally, it's not like Jesus doesn't know what he's doing here, right? He's intentionally irritating them. He's intentionally challenging their authority. He's intentionally confronting them in a way that he knows will result in his death. And as we shared last week, it's, it's Jesus laying down his life for us, right? He is, he is, he's the one instigating this conflict that will result in the cross as he lays down his life for us. Um, uh, but in doing this, uh, Jesus, uh, in, in making this, this claim as Messiah, uh, he is also uh, acting in a way to fulfill messianic expectations. Uh, and there was actually this, uh, this idea that when the Messiah came, that he would, one of the acts or things that he would do is he would cleanse the temple. Right? And this comes from Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And it's very likely that, that uh, people who, uh, who were looking for the Messiah would, would look for this kind of action, right? Malachi 3, Malachi 3, 1 through 4 says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you will seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Okay, and, and so this picture of coming instantly, cutting, coming suddenly into his temple. And when he comes, uh, 
it's going to be in a way that it's going to be hard to endure what he does, right? Who can endure, who can stand when he appears? Why? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and, and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in uh, former years. So here's a picture of, uh, of a, prof- a, prof- a prophetic picture of a mess- messianic person, a Messiah coming, who will come into his temple and he will come and he's going he's to wreak havoc. Right? He's going he's to mess things up. And his purpose is to be like that refiner, to purify the sons of Levi. And so very much so, and we call it that, we call it Jesus cleansing the temple. That something about what he does is, is purifying the worship in the temple. Um, and, and he has to do, so, so, so his, uh, the basis of Jesus' authority to do this is that he is claiming to be the Messiah. Right? He's making, uh, uh, through his actions, a claim to be the fulfillment of these messianic prophecies and expectations. And he does it by taking this extreme action uh, that the people cannot stand, they cannot resist, they cannot stand against. Um, uh, but, but the question comes up then, okay, so, so Jesus is claiming this authority. He's claiming he has a right to make this decision and to cleanse the temple in this way. Uh, but, but why does he does it, do it in such an angry way? Like, why couldn't he have been a lot more diplomatic about it? Um, you know, couldn't he, he have just spoken in a kind of, with kind of firm but gentle authority to the, um, the, the, the money changers and the sellers and say, hey, look, guys, I know you've been given permission to do this, but I'm here as the Messiah, and I want to tell you this is not allowed. You're going to have to pack things up and move out immediately, right? Like, he could have done that, right? Why does he get so angry, right? Why is he trashing tables and turning chairs upside down and driving them out, right? What is that all about? Why does he take just extreme action? Um, Well, I think that... uh, that one of our problems with this whole thing, and, and I know in the modern world especially, you know, we don't put these images in our, in our children's Bibles, and we don't even put them in our adult Bibles, right? Um, we, we don't really like to portray Jesus uh, as being somebody even capable of anger, of these intense emotions of wrath, right? And um, we, we want a Jesus who's very nice, who's always polite, who seems to be always just gentle, and uh, I like that we sang that song this morning, uh, Jesus, uh, strong and kind, right? But, but really what we want is just a kind, a, a kind Jesus, not necessarily a strong one, right? Um, and, and there's a lot of pressure actually from the society and even from inside the church that we, 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 we scrub these angry images of Jesus and, and of God out of the Bible, I've had conversations with missionaries and with Christians who say, well, I just don't, I just, I just basically cut out all the images of, of wrath of, about God in the Old Testament. By the way, it's, that's not an easy task to do. Do you know how many times the wrath or anger of God is mentioned in the Bible? 10, 20, 50? Actually, over 600 times. 600 times. So this is not just a minor theme, right? 
right? Uh, often in Scripture, God is portrayed as angry, right? And the problem is that uh, I think in our modern world, we've come to have a wrong understanding or a wrong way of defining what love is, right? We, we don't understand that, uh, that love has a side that can be very intense and even angry. In fact, we, we've come to be, been influenced by the world around us that, that love never gets angry. Like, love is always calm and somewhat passive and always gentle and, and is easily pushed around, right? Um, that, that love is just some kind of grandfatherly goodwill and gentle action that never gets its uh, feathers ruffled and it's just always kind and always nice, always polite, and never hostile or aggressive. And uh, you see this in, in politics today. But there are, fraction, there, are, there are segments of the political world who would argue countries should never, uh, never react with force, right? Should never pull out a gun or, uh, or, or react with force against any kind of opposition or evil because it's not loving, right? Uh, but, the, but the problem is that... Uh, that is not and cannot be true love, right? Love is, is kind, love is uh, gentle, but it's not only that. There is a very other important side to love, and without that other side, you don't really have love, right? And that side is also fierce. It is jealous, and it is sometimes uh, intense, even angry, and, and it's motivated, and that kind of anger actually is, comes from love, not uh, the opposition of love. And, and I would say uh, great love causes intense reactions. Like if you really love something a lot, it causes you to respond this way. Uh, notice what Jesus says. So he, he, uh, Jesus entered the temple, he drove out, drove out all who sold, he bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Okay, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That actually comes from um, uh, Isaiah ch- chapter 56, verse 6 and 7. And, uh, and it's important to know the context here. A house of prayer for who? For the Jews? Well, yes. But that's not actually the context of Isaiah 56, 6, and 7. Uh, the context there is that God is opening up worship for the nations, for all people, because God loves the whole world. Right? God loves the world. Right? So in Isaiah 56, 6, it says this, And the foreigners, the foreigners, not the Jewish people, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring into my holy mountain, which is the temple. Right, so it's a, God, it's a picture of God opening up and bringing uh, not just Jewish people, but foreigners, people from every uh, language and tribe right, and, and place and peoples into his holy mountain, into the temple. And I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Amazing picture here that God's saying, look, uh, he is a God who loves the whole world. 
And he wants to bring the whole world, the nations, into his holy temple where he fills them with joyful celebration in his house, which is a house of prayer. It's this great picture of God uh, drawing all, all the nations to him. Right? Um, and it is to be a house of prayer. And, and prayer uh, is this great picture of people coming uh, into, into this house, into the temple, to seek God and to, to seek his help, right? Uh, and, and the whole picture of the temple was that it was a place where God's presence dwelled, right? right in, the, in the inner sanctuary, in the inner temple, uh, at the mercy seat, the very glory of God was, was resident, was dwelling there, was present there. Right? And so to come to the temple meant that you were coming like near to God. And it was this great picture of coming close to him. That God wasn't a million miles away. He wasn't way up in the heavens, many light years away. But actually, he was right there in the temple. And to come into the temple was to come close to him, where you could pray, where you could seek him, where you could worship him. And ultimately, this idea of prayer is a picture of having close fellowship and communion with the God who created us. Right? To be near him. To be in his presence. And, 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 God, and Jesus is saying here, that's, the, that's really the purpose and function of the, of the temple. As a place where people could come close to God, draw near to him, to pray and to seek him, and to find his help. Right? And, and God did that because he loves the world. Right? So uh, the, the temple, of course, we know it's a very Jewish thing. Jerusalem is a very Jewish place. The temple was a very Jewish place, right? And it would be easy to think that God loved the Jews, but he really didn't care about the nations. But from the very beginning of his covenant with Abraham, God made it very clear that that covenant was not only for blessing Israel, but God said to Abraham, and through you, through my covenant with you, all the world, all the nations will be blessed. Right? So this, this, this temple was a place for the Jews, but it was also a place that all the nations were to be drawn to come to know God. Right? So, so, so it was intended to be a place that was open for the nations, where all the, all the peoples had access to come in some way near to God. And so, so God loves the world, right? And he wants the world to come to him. He's drawing people everywhere to himself. Uh, that's his love. And because he loves the world so much, he hates everything that separates the world from him. Right? Uh, God's response, God's right response to sin is that he hates it because sin separates people from him. Right? Uh, God hates sin. Uh, and, and he gets fiercely hostile towards sin because he loves people, right? Because he wants them to come close. When there's a barrier, God hates that barrier. And here, uh, a huge barrier had just been erected by this marketplace, right? Remember I said this market was set up in the, the, the courtyard of the Gentiles, and the Gentiles had access to the temple, but not all the way to the inner parts. Right? In fact, there was actually a wall uh, at the edge of the court of the Gentiles with big signs posted every few feet that said, Gentiles may not pass this point. 
not allowed. And there were actually guards who, who patrolled it. Right? But now another barrier had, set up, had been set up, and it was this marketplace. Because now the only place where the Gentiles could go was now, I mean, they could go there, but it was now no longer appropriate for seeking God. Right? It had become a, a distracting place, a noisy place, a place that was no longer suitable for worship. Right? And that's what makes Jesus angry. It's like, you have just now cut off, um, for the sake of convenience, the one place where, where the Gentiles can come and have access to seek God. Right? And so Jesus responds uh, uh, with, with, with extreme action. Right? And the truth is, love does take action. Like, love is not just words, right? And, of course, it's Valentine's Day today. You guys remember Valentine's Day? Uh, hopefully, you know, your husband's all got something for your wives to make them know they're, they're your Valentine, important day, uh, right? And love takes action. Like, uh, worst mistakes I've ever made is, like, forgetting my our anniversary, right? Because on those days, you need to take action or... Uh, words just don't enough. It's like, well, I do. I forgot, but I do love you, really, right? No, no. It's important that you you take action, right? Guys, just note to self: love is action, right? Don't forget those flowers, that box of chocolate, that diamond ring, or whatever, uh, right? Uh, love takes action. Uh, without action, uh, our love is empty, right? And, and because Jesus loves people, because God loves people, Jesus takes action here. And sometimes those actions are kind, but sometimes those actions are pretty severe. Right? That's how it works. Uh, this last week I was talking to a pastor, an older pastor who's been in ministry for many years, and we were actually talking about the importance of protecting children, and we were doing a child protection training for him and for their church. And... Um, as we're having this training, he shares this story, and you could—he shared it with, with with real hurt, like and and regret. And he said when he first got out of Bible school and he was first pastoring at this church in a village way up in the mountains, a 13-year-old girl came to him, and he had been uh, working with this girl with his fan, with with her family and sharing Christ and had built a relationship with her. And this 13-year-old girl came to him and she said, um, "My mom has—I have four older sisters." My mom has sold every one of them into prostitution. She said, I'm 13 years old and I know my turn is next. Will you please help me? Please do not let my mom sell me. Well, he was young. He was inexperienced. And, and to, to be fair, 30 years ago, it was just a very different world, right? And uh, people didn't really know a lot of the things that they know about what goes on and, and how dangerous it is and how wrong it is. Uh, and so this pastor, he, he wanted to help. So he went and talked to the mom, and he said, you know, you can't sell your daughter. And she said, oh, we're not selling her. She's just going to go live with her sister. And, and he dropped it. He just let it go, right? And, and, uh, and, and as he shares this, you could just see the pain in his heart as he realizes he didn't do anything. And, uh, and the mom did sell her into prostitution. And later he found out he uh, connected with her many years later, and she was uh, dying of AIDS and, and dealing with uh, all the hurt and brokenness of, of being sold into that lifestyle. 
And, and you know, if he, if he really loved her, right, he should, his love shouldn't have been passive or gentle, right, right? It should have been, it should have been aggressive. It should have been more, right? And he knows that now, and he, he so regrets it. That's why he, he's so thankful that we're helping their church protect children, right? Um, there's a time when you get fired up, right? There's a time when love motivates you to rage, to anger, to uh, aggressive action because you love them, right? And, 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 you know, we've watered down God's love that we don't want him to be angry. But trust me, we want God to be angry, we want God to take hostile, aggressive action against sin and against those who would harm us, right? And, and so you see that here. Jesus does what he does with rage, with wrath, with anger, because he loves us, right? And really what a picture it is, as we'll see, of removing the greatest sin that's separated, right? The real obstacle wasn't just the marketplace, the real obstacle separating us from God was sin itself. Right? So that brings us to the third, the third and final point. Uh, Jesus' action, all this, is really a great picture that one greater than the temple has come. Jesus is one greater than the temple. Uh, let's just review real quickly the purpose of the temple. It was to be a house of prayer, a place to seek and find God, a place to find cleansing and healing from sin a place where people could have a right relationship restored with God through the shedding of blood. So they would bring these sacrifices and they would offer them. And through that, uh, forgiveness could be made and they could be cleansed from sin. Um, It was this place where the presence of God dwelled and to come into the temple was to come near to God himself, to be in his presence and to be in fellowship and communion with him. And an intimate relationship with the God of the universe whose presence was there in that temple. And so in many ways, it was, it was a recreation, a small little piece of the Garden of Eden. It was God's way of, of renewing and restoring what was lost in the garden, uh, that sin had wrecked it. But, uh, but in the temple, it was to be a place where that fellowship with God in the garden could be restored. Right? But the truth is, the temple didn't work, Right? And what Jesus does here is pointing out the great failure of the temple, right? Um, and, and it goes on, these, these, these two events that are actually contrasted here. So he, he, he goes crazy in the temple, turning over tables and chairs and driving out the cellars. But then when, when it's cleaned out, what happens is it says, and the, lame, uh, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out on the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise? So Jesus changes the scene, right? And uh, in come, uh, come to him the lame and the blind. Um, and it's interesting that uh, we don't know what all they sold. It doesn't say what all they sold, but uh, the sacrifice that was actually required was a lamb, right? But it says here that Jesus actually uh, tr- overturns the seats of those who sold pigeons. 
uh, that's kind of interesting and kind of odd, right? Of all the things that were sold, why does he go after those those horrible pigeon sellers? Well, of course, we all hate pigeons, so no wonder. It's like, yeah, get rid of those pigeons, right? Um, but what's going on there? Well, it's interesting. Uh, the, the Not everybody could afford a lamb. Right? Not everybody had the money to buy a sheep. They were expensive. So uh, the law made a provision that uh, if they couldn't afford a sheep, they could buy a pigeon. Right? Um, and Jesus says, you've turned it into a den of robbers. Uh, it kind of implies that these sellers were corrupt. And maybe Jesus was most angry that, that those who, uh, who were supposed to be helping the poor were actually ripping them off. Right? Maybe that made him the angriest of all. Again, because they are denying access. Right? They, are, they, they are sealing off to the poor uh, access to God. Right? Um, and, and here you see Jesus welcoming in the lame and the blind. Uh, at this period in the temple, those who had defects, who were lame, who were blind, who were crippled, also could not enter the temple. They could enter the, that courtyard of the Gentiles, but even if they were Jewish, they couldn't go into the temple. Why? Because uh, they could bring uncleanness into the temple. Their defect was seen as an uncleanness. Right? But here's this picture of Jesus who, that's not a problem for him. He welcomes them. And you see, these things highlight the failure of the temple, that it didn't really work. Right? It didn't really work. Uh, the priesthood was corrupt. And certainly Jesus' challenge of the priesthood is challenging their corruption and their sin. And why wouldn't they be? They were just sinful, fallen men. Right? How could they really be mediators between God and man when they themselves were sinful and broken? Right? They were corrupt, and the priesthood was corrupt. And, and what could and, and Jesus drives out these animals, and it really is a statement that they don't work, right? The the blood of a sheep cannot really take away sin, and the proof of it was that they were making the temple unclean by their very presence there. So here's the thing: how can an animal that makes the temple unclean make you clean, right? Well, it's a failure in the system. Uh, the blood of bulls and goats cannot really take away sin. And so Jesus in this act shows that the temple is inadequate. And I believe it is a prophecy showing that the temple is about to be destroyed. But more importantly, the temple is about to be made obsolete because one greater than the temple has come. Right? The temple was a picture of what was needed, but it failed to it had failed to live up to what was needed. Right? The temple showed that God wanted a relationship with man and that he wanted them to draw close to him. But the temple really didn't work. It was a broken system. But praise God, one greater than the temple has come. And Jesus is going to do what the temple could never accomplish. How? Well, by becoming the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Right? Jesus confronts the leaders knowing that it will end in the cross because that's his mission. Right? Uh, to do away with the temple through his own sacrifice by offering up his own life so that it's not the blood of a, a lamb, but it's the blood of the Son of God that gives us access to the Father, access to the very presence of God. 
And so the, the whole account ends with, uh, with the children uh, praising Jesus, the Messiah. And of course, the leaders are indignant. They don't like it because they feel it's inappropriate. And it would be inappropriate if Jesus was just a man. But Jesus welcomes this worship. And this comes from Psalm chapter 8, and it was a praise of worship to God. And by receiving this worship, Jesus is actually receiving what is fitting only for God. But if he's not God himself, it's blasphemy. But Jesus claims that he is worthy of that worship. Right? And that's why, he, that's why his sacrifice works. Right? That's why laying down his own life is enough to cover our sins and give us access to God. Right? And that is why shortly after this, the temple is destroyed and the sacrificial system is done away with because it's no longer necessary. Aren't you glad you didn't have to bring a sheep this morning and bring it up here in front? We'd all kill it, sprinkle blood everywhere to cover you, right? It's not needed anymore because we come uh, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. We come washed and cleansed with the blood of Jesus. And through him, we have access to God right? so that we can pray to him, not from a million miles away, but close, up close, one-on-one, in intimate communion and fellowship with the God who created us through the precious blood of Jesus. Uh, He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our life, right? Because he has given us access. Uh, Sometimes is Jesus angry? Yes. But it is that anger that moved him to go to the cross, and to deal finally with sin for us. Right? Uh, to pour out, and, and on the cross, God himself poured out his wrath, not on us, but on Jesus. He took the wrath. He took the judgment and the punishment for our sin. Right? So that we could have peace with God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.